We turn the floor to a related topic. You might have noticed this morning was all about global. This segment has been about enterprise, corporations, and we're heading towards society. Automation and the future of work. The angle that we decided to take in this is how does the corporation fit in? What are the roles and responsibilities we have? How should we be thinking about this? And no, no one better to support this effort than Willis Towers Watson. Many thanks to the many Willis Towers Watson uh, team members who are with us, including Ravine and John, who you, whom you'll meet on the panel. Uh, and then Chris Gebhardt of Stir Strategy and Gary Bowles, uh, both two master storytellers in that business for many years, have been deeply involved in this automation of the future of work issue. And they've been leading this initiative with us for the past few months to prepare for a working session, six hours of working session we had yesterday, uh, which I heard wonderful things about. And finally, we've asked Stephanie Pace Marshall to join. As many of you know, Stephanie's been with us for some time. She's also one of the most meaningful and significant education innovators whom I know in the world, being the founding president emerita of the Illinois Math and Science Academy. So uh, I'd like to welcome them all to the stage. You were told not to be funny. No, do not okay. be funny. Do not be funny. Do not be funny. <laughs> No more funny. No more funny. No problem. <laughs> that panel was having way too much fun. In fact, let's bring Toby back out. Come on, Toby. No. <laughs> well, welcome, everyone. We did have a great, as Rob said, we had a great session yesterday for those who, who were able to attend the challenge session on the future of work. Uh, we had about a, uh, in the morning session, a three-hour scintillating discussion that went in a ton of different directions. And we'll try to both provide some summary of what that discussion was, but then also go a little bit uh, deeper on it as well. We have an amazing uh, panel of folks who are all experts in the space, both directly and adjacent. But I wanted to start off with a, with a quick stat, so, uh, which I'd read the other day. I actually looked it up yesterday when we were having this discussion. Um, do you know the percentage of jobs that were tied to agriculture in 1870 in the US? Uh, memory's about 70%. Yeah, so it was between 50, 60 percent, something like of that. Economic, yeah, er, right. earlier the, in the century, 70 percent of all economic activity was. And, that, and now it's less than two percent, right? So what, what, one of the things we talked about yesterday is that this isn't new. We've been dealing with disruptions uh, to the workforce and what work means and what work is uh, forever. Uh, we talked a little bit yesterday about the duality of tools as they mm -hmm. emerged, right? But there's something different in, we believe, in what's happening today in terms of the pace of change. And really, the core of that is this automation component, right? And the human-machine uh, paradox that's happening. We were calling it the human-machine <laughs> paradox, right? And Ravan, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, this you know, apparent trade-off that has to happen between automation, jobs, and humanity. Yeah, and you know, Chris, as you said, we've been wrestling with this you know, since time immemorial, right? Um, this is not a new problem. Um, but I think that the two points you made about what's different this time around is the pace of change and the convergence and the speed with which multiple technologies are building and leveraging on each other. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, all of the popular press just, just a huge disservice to this debate and discussion because the conversation is always denominated in terms of substitution of jobs by machines. And, the thing that we've increasingly learned, and I think we all know this inherently, is that automation affects tasks, not jobs. And yes, there'll be some tasks that will be substituted, 
but there's going to be tons more which are augmented and created, and, and that never gets any of the, uh, any of the publicity. And you know, so as a result, what you start to see are some rapidly shifting skill premiums, and I think that's where the group yesterday had just a lot of energy around what are the learning implications for that, because this notion of you know, I learn, I do, I retire is, uh, is rapidly changing, or has changed to I learn, I do, I learn, I do, maybe I take a break, and then I keep uh, learning and doing. Um, the thing that is really fascinating is the, the choices that each of us have, right? Because any one organization has the choice of do I substitute the talent that I have and um, replace it with machines, or, or do I actually look for a better way? And the example that you and I were talking about earlier of, of you know, in the natural resources sector, we see autonomous minds today. That's a deliberate, explicit choice by that organization. At the same time, we've got clients who have said, we're going to retain the talent we have. We're going to shift the skill premiums. We're going to retool. We're going to deconstruct these jobs. We're going to apply the right automation. And we're going to reskill and reconstruct new, more human jobs where the risk of losing a limb or losing a toe is completely eliminated by the machine. But we're going to capitalize on your ingenuity and creativity. And the ROI from some of that is, is absolutely impressive. So some, some great choices. And you talk about those jobs as dirty, dull, and dangerous, right? right. So that was a great way to say. So let's do less of those and more of jobs that are what? What's the? You know, it's p positions that emphasize the human ingenuity, that, that br bring about creativity, that emphasize our need, as you call it, you know, we're all tribal. Right. Our, our, our opportunity to be part of a tribe, how I communicate and engage with, with someone, um, how I sort of actually sort of think about uh, the way the work is going to be done and contribute to it as opposed to just execute on it. That's great. And Gary, so Gary's been working in this space really since the womb, quite frankly. <laughs> okay. Let's just say teenage years. The, the teenage years, so, okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, or really, um, it's great to have you a part of this discussion, a key part of it. We did a similar thing last year um, uh, at Kin, and you talk about, and your phrase and specific word for doing exactly what Ravin was talking about is unbundling. Yeah, so, so the basic premise is that the way we think about work, the way we think about jobs, has been sort of a set of constructs for a period of time that, that sort of made a lot of sense. We, we put a lot of things into what a job is. And we're in an era now where, and John Hagel at um, Floyd was one of the first people, actually when he was at McKinsey, was one of the first people to talk about the whole idea of unbundling, breaking pieces of, of uh, elements together uh, apart. And, uh, and so you think about work becoming unbundling, that's why we talk about gigs, that's why we talk about uh, in, independent workers and all the uh, non-traditional work re relationships, that's only going to accelerate because the, the rational sort of decision when you've got a constantly changing world, you've got a set of skills, you're continually trying to find the problems that you want to solve, that's what we all are, is we're, we're problem solvers, you're going to uh, continually build what I call a portfolio of work. You're going to kind of reassemble a lot of the different elements that you want in the kinds of work that you do. And that might include a day job, consulting, doing a startup on the side, you know, and so on. But that's a, that's a kind of rational response to a constantly changing world and, a, and a, a really changing relationship between the organization and the worker. So you talked yesterday about this idea that um, something is different here in terms of the tools that we're now acquiring, right? From if 125,000 years ago we were talking about, you know, acquiring a spear and suddenly it could be used for, to, you know, hunt animals or yeah. to hurt somebody, now we have because of technology, a whole different set of tools that can be that have similar issues, but right. you also said it's actually worse in a lot of ways. Well, so um, uh, I think the the panelists, the earlier panelists, were talking about some of the impacts of AI. So, so software, so our tools 
can, uh, as we've talked about, re replace us. They can actually perform some of the tasks that we do. Our tools can help us to understand ourselves better and our tools can actually augment our skills. They can help to not just identify, but to develop superpowers, to do things. You know, I often say most accountants could do a pivot table by hand if, they, if their lives depended upon it. That's why we have Excel. So we have these tools that continually help us to perform harder and harder tasks. And so I think that's really where our mentality needs to be, is that we need to, to think about that it's not our fault if we don't really know how to use the tools well. Increasingly, what we're gonna do is we need to create tools that actually help us to learn how to use them more effectively <laughs> and help us to solve harder and harder problems in the future. So all of the, so the unbundling of, of careers, the unbundling, unbundling of work implies how we train people. This question of how are we actually getting people ready to work? What are those skill sets? How do we actually um, deliver on the idea of lifelong learning, which everybody's talking about, it's, you know, but nobody knows how to do, I won't say the joke. And Stephanie, this is exactly what you have been doing for a long time and doing exceptionally well. Could you talk a little bit about how you're looking at, you know, what, what you've done over the last 20 years in the context of what's happening today? Well, uh, I think it's important to say that IMSA was designed not to be a school. It was designed to be a laboratory for imagination and inquiry because when you put learning within the context of work for the future, um, you have to say, well, what kinds of minds and habits of mind are going to be able to be creative and innovative and not risk averse and participative and collaborative and all the language that we would use to say in a time of complex problem solving, things are not reductive, they're not mechanistic, they're not linear, and that's what, unfortunately, that's what most schools are now. And so there's a huge disconnect between the kinds of attitudes, predispositions, habits of mind that are being valued and assessed. In pl I, I don't call them schools, I call them places currently called schools <laughs> because I hope they will become laboratories of imagination and inquiry. So we have to create environments. First of all, we need a new narrative about what learning really means. Uh, we need a new map uh, to give us some design principles for the kinds of conditions you need to create to make sure that kids are engaged in solving complex problems together, defining them, identifying them, and resolving them together, and for now, until exponential exponentially they get even more complicated. And you have to design landscapes, learning landscapes, where kids are really intensely involved in what we call at IMSA, working on complex problems that advance the human condition. There is a tension in the kinds of uh, incredible advances we've done in technology. I am blown away with some of, not even, um, uh, it's the augmented uh, virtual reality. It's not even virtual reality, but now. In aug augmentation, you can so personalize learning that a person could be in the midst of solving a problem, and the technology will assess that there's a piece, maybe of data that they're missing, there may be a skill that they're missing, and it's augmented so that they can keep, keep going forward. That's astonishing technology. But we cannot be so um, enamored with the technology that we forget that we're talking about human problems. We're talking about uh, problems that require people to be empathetic and communicate 
and to care for others over self and to participate in we rather than me, that will always create some level of tension. So our work at IMSA is about transformation. It's about changing the form and nature of something. It's not about fixing it or trying to get better what we currently have. I would encourage all of you, your parents or grandparents, you, you live in, in communities where there are schools. Find out the kinds of minds and habits of minds that are being grown in your schools and see if they match with the astonishing creativity, innovation, interdependence, collaboration, complexity required for the work of the future. That's fantastic. So in having, and you, you used a, a key word there, a trigger word for me, which is empathy. And which is, I think is fantastic uh, in terms of obviously to the design process, to how we relate. And now I'm gonna shove it into a completely different context. Can corporations actually have a soul of empathy in them? That to me seems to be where the purpose of the corporation lies. John, this is what you do. Yes. Uh, can you talk a little about this? This was a theme that was an undercurrent. It was really interesting. We are talking about the future of work yesterday with 45 people, and the word purpose kept coming up again and again and again. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and sure. connect the dots here? Yeah, I mean, I, I really think purpose is everywhere. And, you know, Rob introduced this panel by talking about the role of the corporation in, in purpose and in empathy and authenticity and all the other things we expect of ourselves as human beings and leaders. And, you know, the reality is it's not really news to say that a corporation is an aggregation of all the individuals in it, but the extent to which a company can align the individual purposes of each member of its own society with the collective purpose of the organism or the organization itself, with the collective purpose of the broader community, that's really where we see not only the kind of social alignment that we strive for as we think about the interdependence of systems and conferences like this, but as it turns out, there's also news, which is the companies that do that actually do better. And you know, I, I, I'm a student of behavioral economics, and for the first 25 years of my career, there was this belief that there was this negative tension between profitability and purpose. And we heard a little bit about this yesterday, right? Well, the reality is all the data today suggests that the companies actually can align those, um, actually outperform the market for, depending on how you measure, anywhere between 16 and 42% in a given year. That, those data, I think, validate what many of us in the room have known our whole careers, is that organizations that have a collective purpose are not only better leaders through the empathy, through the authenticity, through the emotional well-being, the psychological safety, and all the things we have that drive performance. But what they do is they create a better sense of well-being for their people. The chain is that leads to greater engagement, greater productivity, greater customer outcomes, and greater financial results. It's, it's really that simple. And so for the argument that I think always ensues is the fundamental role of the corporation to serve the shareholders, or the community, it turns out that's a false question because the companies that serve the community end up serving the shareholders as well. And that is not a Pollyanna statement. Um, you know, folks like Larry Fink and others who put that out there are not altruists. Right. They're, they're corporatists, they're marketeers, if you will. And what we find is that alignment helps with brand, it helps also with investors, but it also helps with employees delivering so you get the complete chain. That's great, and I, uh, for those of you who have um, either done work with Unilever, I think they're a great yeah. example of yeah. this, and, and what Paul Pullman did, right? 
we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, is on the, on the Unilever brand key, which is their uh, brand positioning chart. It's literally in the shape of a key and talks about who the customers are for each brand and what, the, what they're really delivering for the brand. Pullman first defined the Unilever Sustainable Living Platform right. and then insisted that every single brand put it at the heart of the brand key, and literally, it is in the shape of a heart yes. at the center of the brand key. It's a little on the nose, but it really works because it made every single mm -hmm. brand manager say, this is how I relate, this is the heart of why these brands exist as an aggregation right. uh, in, a, in a corporation, but also, I think, broad, more broadly, it says, this is why we exist together, right? And you talked about this idea of a group of people coming together around, bonding around a problem and a problem to be solved. That's really a visual representation of that. So, yeah, so the basic premise to me is, is we are all problem solvers. And so if an organization is basically just a bundle of problems to be solved, then all the people that work in it are, are problem solvers who can dynamically bind around problems. And the challenge is that in a world of constant change that we've, we've all accepted, exponential change, as we like to say at Singularity, is, uh, is that it, in the past it seemed like it was a rational act. If you think of this as, as all of the problem solvers in the organization, this is the problems to be solved. Well, it's constantly changing. And in the past it was a rational act, to, to many people thought, to just lay people off. Like, oh, we don't need those skills anymore. We need all these new skills. Yeah. And if you have that zero sum mentality, then everything you're talking about in terms of purpose is completely you know, false. Right. <laughs> the, the organization is not saying, no, we, we actually need to continually have our problem solvers to solve new problems. We'll discard the old ones, we'll go pick up some new ones. And I think that we have to completely change that mentality and that calculus. But because I think what that does, that's absolutely right, because what that does is the one thing that we are finding time and time again, and I think the reason this purpose piece is so important today, and this came up yesterday in droves, was the, the thing that, that workers today are looking for more than anything else is stability, continuity, and certainty, right? And you can't promise absolute certainty in, in any realm, but the thing that really allows organizations and people to navigate this incredibly dynamic and complex world we live in ultimately is that shared purpose. And you know, I think back, I think back, and you know, I see Rob sitting here, and so I, I'm gonna out us a little bit, Rob. Um, so I may have known Rob longer than anyone in this room. I helped Rob move into our dorm uh, freshman year of college um, at Northwestern. And, and that was a little late then. Wasn't well, it? yes, exactly, yeah, okay. he, he, little late, yeah. 10 minutes yeah. late to the yeah. final okay. bell. But um, yeah. you know, one of the things that we used to talk about a lot, I remember Rob came, in, came into our suite uh, bathroom one morning at you know, six o'clock in the morning as I was getting ready for my internship and he was getting ready to go to bed. And you know, he said, you know, in, in, the year, in the year 2000, it's true, in the year 2000, which seemed really far away back then, right? In the year 2000, the largest retailer in America isn't going to have a single store. And I said, oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, come on. And it turns out it was a little later than 2000, but it was true. But that kind of transcendent thinking, I think, allows people you know, to really get past the here and now. Because you talk about purpose, to your point, right? I have been to public utilities that are 150 years old who say their mission or their purpose is to enable their city to exist, right? right? I go to things that used to be called schools until 10 minutes ago, <laughs> and their common purpose is to facilitate the advancement of society. I go to companies that create memories. 
I go to companies that facilitate connections between people through air travel. And so if you take a transcendent approach to what your purpose is, and you're not thinking, well, this is our mission for today, and it's just right. about sustainable profitability, but you say to yourself, what is going to be our purpose for today and then the next 100 years? I, I think you accomplish Yeah, sustainable purpose. About. Right. Absolutely. So, Robin, um, we've talked a lot about over the last uh, day or so this idea of building a new narrative, right? Around, around work, right. and I think that there's definitely this need, one of the themes that came out of yesterday for me was this idea of re redefinition of the compact between an employer and an employee, right. of literally what the definition of the, of the corporation is and its role in society. Mm -hmm. um, could you just talk a little bit about some of the, the where you've seen this come up as a, as a real need and opportunity? Yeah, so, so we, we do a heck of a lot of work with, with the World Economic Forum and other entities to sort of figure out, you know, what does the future of work look like and how does the organization evolve from the current mindset of being, you know, the aggregation of multiple different jobs into job families, into functions, into that siloed enterprise to increasingly being the hub of an ecosystem. And the trick is, you know, to come back to the point about purpose is, it's relatively easy to align a group of employees against a common purpose. It gets awfully challenging when you've got this broader ecosystem of partners, employees, the folks on a, um, working for you on a, on a gig, coming off of Upwork, the folks who may, maybe your RPA vendor, your AI vendor, your outsourcer. How do you now align them against a common value proposition? And that's, the, uh, that's sort of the, the outgrowth or the manifestation of the work we're doing with organizations around purpose is how do you create a common proposition so that that person you engage with once every two years off of Upwork feels as aligned to your mission as does that 30-year-old, 30-year employee who's, who's been there. So and extending that to you, Stephanie, so how, how do you get you know, the people formerly known as students, <laughs> right, <laughs> to to, to em embrace that. So not necessarily the ones that, that you know, you'd be working with who are like brimming with energy and excitement, but everyone in the population to have that level of energy because I think that that's what it's gonna take. It's gonna take, we can't, and we talked about this yesterday, no human left behind, right? Um, and Tom, Tom Friedman talks about this in his book yeah. about, you know, if you're a white working class male without mm -hmm. a, with a high school degree or even not a high school degree in 1960, you kind of had to really work at failing, mm. right? Just because of the opportunities that were out there. And now, when it's really since about 1980, you really had to plan to, to succeed. You really had to work to succeed if you're a white working class male without a high school degree. How do we reach them and, and, and take what you've done and what you've built and make that apply across society? Is there a way to do that? Yeah, well, yes, and part of it is um, why does it matter when you're asking me to learn something? I mean, how many times have kids said to you, your kids or grandkids or whatever, why do I have to learn algebra? I'm never going to use it anyway. Why do I have to learn about, well, I'm never going to use it anyway? Well, it's the never going to use it anyway that links to <laughs> purpose because people have to understand as human beings, we're insatiably curious and we want to matter. We want to do something that makes a difference. Not, you don't just take algebra so you can check it off. You take algebra because it might be a tool that help you advance something in one of the 17 millennial and development goals, which is what IMSA grounds our curriculum in. And you can do that at every level of scale with every person is honoring the need for all of us to matter and make a difference. And in places currently called schools, 
Um, <laughs> I don't say that to be funny. I really say that because if I called him a school, I'd be spending all my time telling people what we don't do instead of what we do do. Because once you say school or high school, people say, well, I know what you do. And we don't do that. So it's grounding in, in fundamental purpose. It's giving kids the tools to really make a difference. And they can, uh, at whatever level they are, whether it's water or you know what's in the Millennial Development Goals, is contextualized learning in things that are real for children. They can, kids. That's our timer. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> kids, along with us, have built-in crap detectors. They know when you're for real, and they know when you're not. They do. If you give them a bill of goods of why they have to study something, because it's just to get something on their transcript, it's not real. But when you show them how what they're learning really makes a difference and can make lives better for them and others, then they will buy in. That's great. Well, I, I just want to close on a, on a personal anecdote that ties back to this. So I lost my dad about six weeks ago. And um, about 20 years ago, uh, after church one day, a guy who my dad worked with came up to me. He was a mechanical engineer. My dad was a mechanical engineer and, and was a plant manager. And he pulled me aside and he said, I want to tell you that, and this was a guy who was 65 years old. He said, I've, I've worked for a ton of people over my career and um, the, the best person I've ever worked for is your father because he made me feel every day that I was doing something important. And that stuck with me. And I think that that's the, like, mm -hmm. building organizations, building people that can do that. It still comes down to the humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we have oftentimes lost over the last 150 years as we've treated humans as machines. And now that the machines are taking over for what the humans used to do, it creates a whole new opportunity to do something magical and special in terms of what our, what our real purpose is. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you all. Thank you. So. Thank you so much to the panel, and Chris, thank you. Uh, you're, to paraphrase your father's friend, you're all doing things that really matter. Thanks so much.